Welcome to Tone Benders, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Dustin, Timothy, and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, are Timothy Muirhead and Dustin Camilleri. I'd also like to introduce the first guest of the show, Sean Farley. Sean is a contributing editor at designingsound.org. He runs the Dynamic Interference website, and he is a freelance and staff editor and mixer. Find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado, and I need a new Twitter handle. Tim is at Azimuth Audio, Dustin is at Pulse Train, and Sean is at DYN Interference. Hey, how's it going? Hey, Sean. Thanks for having me on. Let's do some comments. Excellent. We got a bunch of great questions and comments from the last one. We got our first comment from a Russian who says, great, wish you guys never stop with the podcast. It's very interesting. So that's from Sergei Rynazarov from Moscow. Nice. We also got one with a question from Shannon Penner of Plunk and Boom. Another great episode, but I've got a question for a future episode. Once you've recorded your sounds, what's the typical process of incorporating it into your own library? Editing process, naming conventions, metadata, and stuff like that. Thanks a lot, guys. Renee, I think you talked about maybe doing that as a segment for a future episode. Yeah, I feel like we could do a whole show on that. Um, Overall, my general process is when I bring stuff in, I'll, I'll be sure to bring all my raw stuff into a drive that gets backed up, and I'll bring all my photographs. I always shoot photos whenever I'm recording sound also, so I'll bring all of that in at the same time and put it in the same folder. Chuck it all into Pro Tools. If it's a big, heavy, multi-mic shoot, then I'll also route it down to where I can do bounced out combined files. Like, for instance, if I had eight mics on a vehicle or something, I'll also do mixed down onboard files. Once all the files are kind of printed and edited up, I do most of my metadata management inside of SoundMiner. So with SoundMiner, you can use it as a batch file renamer in addition to a metadata editor. I'll use that as my heavy editing tool. Get it all in there, embed the photos with it all. I have a set of set keywords that I use on certain types of things in order to really find them later. If something really stands out as just incredible, I will mark badass in the metadata, and I'll find it later. Yeah, and then from there it goes into the main drive and gets distributed out to the rest of the facility. Right on. Uh, I think that can make a really good segment for a future episode because I agree with everything you say, but I have a million things that I could add to it, as uh, I'm sure the other two on the line do as well. But uh, maybe we should save that for the full segment. Uh, Another great comment was, I love the first episode. I'm currently on a lookout for the job, so I guess I need to work on my coffee-making skills. So that was from Stephen Saldaha in Auckland, New Zealand. And uh, if you recall in the first episode, we talked about how uh, in order to get your foot in the door, you got to make good coffee. So obviously he's taken that to heart. Nice. Finally, the last comment we're going to talk about is uh, from Chris Winter. And he wrote, Terrific show. I'm one of these guys just starting out with a Zoom H4N. And I totally agree with the buy cheap entry level stuff and then get the best when you are good enough with no in between. I'm looking to buy a shotgun microphone and was thinking about getting the Rode NTG2. Is it beneficial to get a preamp as well? Stuff like the Mix Pre-D is well out of my budget, and I don't know if any of the cheap ones are any good, but I certainly don't want something bad, which would be useless when I finally upgrade everything else. Or shall I just keep saving for a blimp and new microphone before I head into the preamp territory? Thanks for any advice. Only two episodes, and you guys already rock. So, Renee, you did that segment from last episode about uh, starting up with a field kit. Do you have any answers for him? If he's got an H4N, he's got a better preamp than he's going to get until he starts really spending some money. He should save up and get that mix pre-D. I think that's probably the next step up from the H4N. 
And you guys mentioned in the last episode, there's nothing wrong with buying used gear. Absolutely. If you can find decent gear that's been carefully used and is still in good condition, that's a cheaper option most of the time than buying it brand new. I have a Rode NTG2 also, and it's funny, I've owned it for years and I barely ever record with it. And it's not because I don't like it, it's just because I have access to a whole bunch of other shotguns that I tend to take out. I know Diego Stocco used it to do his music fremetry, um, and it sounded very good on that. He's probably got more experience with it than I do. I own it, and I never, ever take it out. Not the fault of the mic. I'd also say it's always good to plan your future, so to speak, but uh, don't overthink it. Make sure that you're not getting caught up in the what should I do, when should I do it game, and get out there and record. If you've got an H4N, you should be outside recording and not writing comments about what should I buy next. <laughs> but we do like the comments. <laughs> nice. <laughs> okay, so that was the comments section. Last time we actually got a comment about using iPads for controller interfaces. Uh, Tim, you did a little follow-up on that. Yeah, after we posted the first episode of Tone Benders, we got the following question from Colin Hunter, who is based in Paris. As a small discussion point, and perhaps something that we could follow up on from the Kima discussion in episode one, I was wondering if you would be willing to share your thoughts on using the iPad or other touchscreen input device as a controller. If it is something that you guys have already done, how did it work out? Are touchscreen gestures something that will become common in the world of sound design in the future? So thanks for the question, Colin. We thought that this would be a great idea for a discussion, so I contacted David Burns, who is a sound designer and an extremely talented composer and an avid iPad user in his day-to-day -day audio workflow. I first met David about 10 years ago when we worked together in Ottawa at a great audio post-production studio called Bartmart, run by one of the great audio minds I've ever come across, Wayne Bartlett. David agreed to do the interview with me and talk about exactly how he uses the iPad in his sound design and music. As well as using the iPad as a DAW controller, David has written extensive scripts that have turned his iPad's touchscreen into an amped up version of Quick Keys, leaving him with the ability to let the iPad handle all of the computer interactions so he can concentrate on getting a creative sound. Let's hear from David now. Okay, we're here with David Burns of Bartmart Audio, an avid iPad user in his day-to-day -day work with audio. Uh, David, how did you first start using the iPad in your work? Well, you know, actually it was a replacement for a box called the X Keys. I uh, used to have this uh, USB box that you'd plug into your computer and you'd have these blank keys across it. In my case, I had like about 50 keys on my model. And so you could basically do shortcut keys that would go out to whatever program you were working with. And I got thinking of the iPad when I looked at it. Oh my God, it kind of blew the doors off. You didn't have to have these 50 keys. You could have whatever you wanted. I started thinking about how I could use that and it just kind of came from there. How often in your typical day are you using the iPad and how deeply has it changed the way you work? I use the iPad every day. It's, it's almost like a keyboard for me now, uh, in the sense that it sits right next to my keyboard. It's, it's just part of my workflow. I turn it on, I don't even think about it anymore. So it's there all the time. And you're interacting with it constantly? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's like I have my mouse on my right side, I've got the keyboard in the middle, and I've got the iPad on the left side. I'm even using it as I'm composing stuff. I'm actually on it with my left hand a lot of the times. My right hand might be on the keyboard. That combination is kind of nice because I have both hands where I can free up the other hand, but this way here I've got my right hand for the mouse and keyboard and then left hand for iPad. It's that integrated into my setup. Do you find it to be both more efficient and more intuitive or more one than the other? You know, for me, I find it more efficient than I would say intuitive, but maybe it's because I'm using my own templates. 
I've tried using some controller software and stuff that other people made, kind of gravitated towards my own. And really for me, it's the efficiency over the intuitiveness of it. Except if by intuitive you're saying, you know, I don't have to think about certain things anymore, then there is a little bit of intuitiveness to it because, like for example, I don't have to remember shortcut keys anymore. They're just named on the thing. On that level, intuitive, yes, but see, I think that's more efficiency because I can do with one button hit what sometimes took me quite a number of button hits before. So I, I see it as an, as an efficient thing. So what software are you using with the iPad exactly? Right. On my iPad, I started with TouchOSC on the iPad. Then I kind of moved over to Lemur when it came out. And I pretty much settled in with Lemur. It's pretty open. You can script in there. You can do a whole bunch of things. And you can, they have objects. And you can create your own pages and whatnot. So I've kind of settled on Lemur at the moment. Um, that's really the main one. And on the computer side, I'm using it with something called Osculator. And Osculator is the bridge software between my iPad and the software that I use on the, on the computer. Do you use the iPad ever as a fader controller? Yeah, actually, some of my pages, I have like 30 faders on them. In my case, I'm using them for MIDI, but I do have volume and some panning. But mostly, I'm, do, I'm using it to do MIDI programming, so all my faders are MIDI volumes and whatnot. On a hardware controller, you're grabbing actual knobs and faders, and it's more tactile. Does that bother you with the iPad that it's virtual instead of tactile? It totally did at first because comparing it with a real fader, I got to be honest and say I think the real fader still has it for me. But what I also discovered is that they make these pens with these rubber tips on them. And it's really cool because now I don't actually touch the thing with my fingers as when I'm doing fader moves for sure. And I'll just use my little pen which I keep right next to it. And it's way, way faster because it's like having an extra extension on the end of your finger. But with this little pen, I find that I get less wear on the iPad screen and uh, I don't get any of that finger smudge and, and dirt and stuff like that, which is really the thing that I don't like about, you know, touch fader things. So with this thing, I find that it kind of solved that problem for me and I find that that's really been useful. But if I'm using my fingers, I have to admit, I think the faders are, are, are much nicer. From what I understand of your setup, you have a lot of uh, drilled down, for lack of a better term, quick keys or shortcuts yeah. to open up sessions a certain way and to bring up instruments a certain way. How much time have you spent setting up that workflow with the iPad? First thing I'm going to say is that I'm not uh, an expert Apple scripter. I'm, I'm not an expert programmer. I'm a composer, sound designer. So it took me a while to understand how AppleScript worked, but with Osculator, you can actually program AppleScript commands in Osculator. When I realized that, I thought, you know, I could have a button on my iPad, I link it to this AppleScript, and then I can do whatever AppleScript does. And that opens the doors to anything that's on a Mac. And I thought, you know, wouldn't it be neat to have a button on my iPad that I could hit that button, it would send off an Apple script, which would basically tell it, hey, go and open this document that I've already saved on my computer. So now, now I don't have to go into any of the menus. I don't have to go anywhere else. I just go over my iPad. I hit that button, boom. I find on that level, I'm not interfacing with the Mac menu as much, but it does take the time to have to create the Apple script, create the initial document. But once, once that's documented and you leave it in the same place, you're good to go. So in my case, I got about 50 of those documents that I have sitting there. And the cool thing with the iPad 
with Lemur, it's cross-platform. So for example, you could in theory have a button on your iPad that goes and controls one specific computer and another button next to it that goes and does something on another computer, which is, I think is pretty cool. So one iPad controlling multiple computers. Yeah. For example, if you were running Pro Tools on one computer and you know, a couple slave computers and your main computer is composing like what I have, I could have my iPad have a transport for Pro Tools on one computer and a transport for Logic just above it and they could be labeled and then right there, right in front of me, without even having to switch like you'd have to on some other products, I could basically control them both at the same time. Overall though, you consider the amount of time you spent building these scripts and documents compared to the amount of time you save by using them over and over again to be uh, a gain, right? Yeah, it's totally a gain. I find myself going to it a lot because my mind is filled with other tasks. Sometimes when you have to go off and you, you know, now you're opening documents and you're looking for sound effects and stuff, sometimes it throws you off from what you're thinking about what the task is in front of you. So the whole point for me was to try and hone in on what it is in front of me that I'm trying to do and try and get all those other tasks to go by the wayside so I don't have to think about them anymore. It's more about forgetting about those things that you don't want to have to think about anymore. And I find on that level it's been really great. So it allows you to let your brain work on the creative part. Yeah. And let all the technical issues just kind of look after themselves with single buttons. You know, these things that I'm constantly doing all the time and the buttons are in the same locations obviously so it's almost like this instinctual uh, you know, my, my fingers seem to know exactly where to go. So is there any feature that isn't available or a direction you see the iPad going in the future that would be extremely helpful? I don't know how everyone else feels, but it would be really cool if you could, say, bring up a plug-in up on your iPad. So if, let's say you're in Pro Tools. If you're working away and you want to call up a plug-in, it'd be kind of cool if that plug-in came up onto your iPad and you could move the stuff with your fingers and create your automation data that way. That would be kind of a neat thing. I know there's, there's a few that have that, but it's kind of clunky for me. If there was a way that it was a little more seamless, that would be something that would be really useful. Instead of using shortcut keys to uh, let you know, like shift command, uh, option, you know, whatever, and name whatever key you want, the problem is, is that we have more command shortcuts that we'd like than there are, I think, combination of keys. And I think of rethinking of how to, to address shortcut keys using maybe OSC messages as addresses would be a nice way to do it. And that would be really cool. Uh, that would be a nice way to go. Some programs like Reactor and I think Max MSP can deal with OSC messages directly. Maybe that's something that, uh, you know, to think about. If your iPad dies in the middle of a session, would you continue on without it, or would you rush out and get a new iPad immediately? I would really curse myself. I'd probably just keep working for, <laughs> you know, until I could finish what I was doing. I would be getting one within the next day or so for sure. I could probably see myself running more than one at the moment, even as, as it is now. I, I would like to have more than one. Um, I'm, I'm coming up to the limit of what I can do with the one because the Lemur program has a, a, only a certain amount of message so you can only have so many pages. As I discover new things that I want to do with the thing, I'm probably going to run out of memory, so I might have to run a couple of them in tandem just so that I can access everything. But yeah, I definitely have at least one. You know, two makes sense because then if one goes down, you still have the other one. <laughs> <laughs> So just a couple notes on that interview. First off, David contributed a bunch of uh, sound design elements that are going to be used in the bumpers throughout this episode. 
Those were all made using the iPad within his workflow. Secondly, that interview was conducted prior to the release of the Slate Pro Audio Raven touchscreen DAW console, which actually features the plugin integration which David talked about as something he'd like to see in the future. So I guess a good question to follow up on is the Raven the future? I hope not. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of the same way. I put a blog post up as soon as I saw it, and you know, my thought on it was that that's not the way that I want to work. No. It's, um, I mean, it's basically a DAW monitor that you can touch. They, they didn't change anything about the way you work. And if you watch the video, it's a lot more clunky and a lot more difficult to navigate your session and do what you want to do than the way we work now. So I think it's an interesting proof of concept, certainly, but I don't see it as being a future of workflow. Now, I didn't get a chance to look at that one because between AES and getting delayed in San Francisco because of Hurricane Sandy and all this other stuff, I'm still kind of catching up. How does that one compare to, say, like Nairing's, uh V-Control Pro? Is it similar? For anyone that hasn't seen it yet, we'll put a link up on the show page for this. It's basically, it's replacing the console and the DAW entirely so that you have one giant screen. It's about I think 46 inches, is that what it was? It's in that ballpark. I can't remember the exact dimension. The faders are built into the screen. There are no external faders. The Pro Tools is built into the screen, and you can oh. edit with touch, touching edits. But the problem to me is it seemed like a, an alpha or a beta type of it, like instead of being the final release, because there, there seemed to be large gaps in how it would work. For instance, the screen is so big if you wanted to do an edit, you'd be doing like massive finger movements across the screen if you were zoomed in at all, because if you want to cut out 10 seconds of something, that could be like 12 inches across the screen. And instead of just a flick of the finger on a trackball or on a mouse, you're moving your hand all the way across the screen, which is already way out in front of you. I feel like by the end of a day, if you worked with it all day, either your arms would be killing you or you would be super ripped because like, it'd be like a workout unto itself because the way we work now with the short movements on a mouse or trackball suddenly become these grand gestures. Okay, so this is, this is much larger than V-Control iPad. Yeah, it's not an iPad, but it is uh, continuing along the lines of the touch-sensitive screen. Gotcha. We can get back to what David was talking about before, but I just thought since that just came out and... I don't even know if polar reviews are the right answer because almost everything I've read is it's interesting and it looks great, but I don't know if I would want to work on it. I think that the issue is that you can't ever really edit waveforms with your fingertips in a super fast, accurate way. I mean, I think you'd need a pointing device to do that right, even if it's a stylus or whatever, but your fingertips are just not going to edit waveforms very well ever. And the other thing is... is I think that they designed it not necessarily for post-production audio, but... Yeah, that's a music console. Yeah, I cannot see how it could possibly work if you were working to picture as well, because with those faders, if you're not feeling what you're touching, you have to be looking at them to know so that your finger doesn't just go right past where the top of the fader is. And you can't be watching the screen and syncing the movements to what's happening on screen while also looking at your finger on the faders. Obviously, it wasn't designed for post-production audio, but I can't see how it could work with that. But the same thing could be said for controllers on an iPad, that you have to look at them because you don't have the tactile feel of the fader. So, Dustin, you do have an iPad in your workflow. I do. What, what was your thought on that? Uh, on, on actually using the on iPad? On using the iPad? Uh, I'm a huge iPad fan, and actually, I think... In general, the most exciting stuff happening in audio is on the iPad, in general. In terms of instrument design, in terms of interface design, in terms of workflow, 
I think it's a really exciting time. I use it every day. I use it in a similar way that David does. I actually had a lemur way back when, when the lemur was a standalone device. A hardware lemur. Yeah, the hardware. It, it's, it was great. And at the time, I, th- I thought to myself, this is something really interesting that I can get behind. And it wasn't because you had faders and knobs, but because you could build your own interface. And those objects were unique. You could attribute properties such as physics to them. So you could have an XY box with a kind of a ball inside that you could flick and it would move according to some physics modeling. Now that's really interesting if, in a very basic sense if you're controlling a filter, say, cutoff and resonance. That gives you a really organic movement that you just can't get any other way by physically manipulating faders. And that, that kind of stuff to me is, is, is the future, not necessarily in figuring out another way to bring your faders up and down because I think we've pretty much figured that one out. Nothing's going to be better than a real fader ever because that just works. But in terms of trying to do some other stuff and interact in a different way, I think the iPad is an amazing piece of gear. And and yeah, I use it for everything. I use it, obviously, as I've said before, I'm a huge Kima user, so I use it every single time I'm in Kima. I use the Lemur software. I also use Kima Control from Symbolic Sound. It'll auto-map all of my VCS faders and layouts. So easy manipulation. I can do some really fun stuff. I use Oscillator, just like David does, to kind of route stuff in and around my system. I can control multiple things at the same time. Within Lemur, I build interfaces that can control multiple applications or multiple machines at the same time and control them in whatever way that I want. So I think in terms of flexibility, which I'm really a fan of, and in terms of being able to customize, there really isn't anything that can touch it at the moment. And I'm, I'm actually a really big fan of the iPad mini because for a long time I've had a dream of building a kind of a custom console, an affordable custom console, and maybe building a master section out of iPads. And I think the iPad, a few iPad minis stacked together could make a pretty badass master section for a console. So what's like a basic example of taking an iPad as a controller and controlling multiple devices, like 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 what's a real-world kind of way that you would do that? Uh, well, for instance, I'm a, a Kima user, a Logic user, and a Pro Tools user, and I have those things open almost all the time. So I can easily create one interface via Lemur, for instance, that can have a transport, stop, start, record, etc. for each one of those things. And using an application like Oscillator, it'll read, it'll see that data coming from the iPad, and once it sees that data, I can tell it, okay, this button send to Logic, this button send to Pro Tools, this button send to Kima. So in one page, I can easily start, stop, move around, whatever, uh, all those things at the same time. If I didn't have something like that, it, it would require either going back to the computer, switching Windows, or multiple devices, multiple MIDI devices to control all that stuff. The iPad makes it really easy. And the great thing, I think, is that once you've built that, interface, so you say I've got three transports, and I'm working on a project, and all of a sudden, I don't know, I'm doing something, whatever it is, and I think, well, now I need another button. If I had a dedicated controller that had a certain amount of buttons, well, now I'm going out and I'm buying something else. With the iPad, I need another button, I'll make another button. It's just that simple. And so it can grow and evolve as you, as you grow and evolve and as your projects change, which is a huge time and money saver, which I'm always interested in. Sean, you use the iPad at all? Uh, I haven't, actually. I've been kind of scoping out the, the Nairink uh, V-Control for a while now and may eventually 
pull the trigger on that, but I've been using uh, the uh, Euphonics Artist series. Uh, I've got the, the control surface at home, which I use, and I love because it's got the the quick keys built in. It's got a couple faders. The the jog wheel, the shuttle wheel is a little weak in my opinion, but I've heard from other people who have bought the dedicated jog wheel that is in that line that that particular jog wheel makes the one that's on the control surface feel like a toy. That's probably going to be high on my purchase list um, sometime in the near future. Yeah, the, the Avid Transport's quite nice. I've heard that. I kind of want to get my hands on one now, like grubby little mitts. But that V-Control is also really great. I think that that's pretty much as the best example I've seen of true integration between iPad and a particular application. Um, I use the V-Control as well, and I'll use it because I'll once I'm finished with the mix, I'll go down into the client seating area, and then I can play back, stop, record, make notes, while sitting where the director or producer or whatever would sit. So I can get out of my desk and away from my computer and really focus on you know just listening critically to playback which is nice. And I have complete control of my DAW from wherever I am in the room. It's also helpful if you have to go do some emergency Foley at 3 a.m. and you want to both be running the Foley session from the desk and also be doing the Foley, you can bring the iPad in and control the DAW from inside the recording room. Yeah, and it's a little more seamless because I'm doing that right now, actually, but I'm talking to you guys on my iPad while VNC to my studio and outside the booth controlling that on my iPhone. So technology is pretty amazing. And that V-Control Pro works on both Mac and Windows platforms. So if people who have been sitting there is like, oh, I don't have a, a, a Mac to use it with, uh, you're wrong. You can use it with Windows. So go check it out. Dustin, do, do you use any instruments through the iPad? Uh, like not as a controller for other things. Do you use the iPad to actually generate sounds at all? Uh, I do. Like I said, I think some of the more interesting music development is happening on the iPad. Uh, certainly stuff like, as everyone knows, like the Animoog is great. But even some more full-featured stuff, if you've heard of this application called Aurea, which is kind of amazing. It's basically that Raven by Slate Digital in an iPad, which I think is a much more suitable format for it. It's full-featured, multi-track DAW. It's got plugins built in from PSP Audio. You can record with a class-compliant audio interface. You can record up to eight channels of 96K at one time. Straight to your iPad. That's pretty amazing. Import and export AAF, pretty great. Yeah. Then there's some other stuff like uh, Music Studio is really interesting. And actually, I forget what I was just reading, but there's some large manufacturer has kind of stolen some of their ideas in terms of interface design and the way that that works. When, when you're generating sounds, when you've got a synth in there, do you tend to just like internally render in sync with the Dropbox or do you run the analog outs into a workstation or, or how do you yeah, catch sounds? Yeah, I just I run the, the output into my main rig and I just leave Pro Tools or whatever and record and play around. That's cool. That's pretty much how I work with uh, all of my external gear. I'll just drop Pro Tools and record and play for as long as I want and then I'll go back and edit those. I very, very rarely render down and then import that into a session. Even with Kima, the way that I work with that, I route those outputs back into Pro Tools and leave Pro Tools in record. Kima, of course, and Reactor and all those things you can render within those applications. But I find it a little more instantaneous when you're just leaving it in record and just going for it. And you don't have to think about anything. You don't have to stop your creativity. Or I, I work a little bit in a hybrid sense of that, in that when I kick a synth open, I will, I will just kick it open in standalone mode, like I'll kick open Reactor in standalone mode and route it into Pro Tools. But I'll tend to not record until I hear something that I like. I'll tend to, I'll tend to edit a little bit with my record button on the front end. Yeah, I'm, I'm such a 
parameter jockey that by the time I find something that I like, I've missed it. So I try to always be in record. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Let's move on to some uh, Valhalla. Yeah. So one of the things we're going to do moving forward on the podcast is to review some software, some hardware, and all kinds of other stuff. So we decided to start this week with a small plugin that I've been using recently called Valhalla Shimmer from a little plugin manufacturer called Valhalla DSP. So here we go. In today's walkthrough, we're going to look at Valhalla Shimmer from Valhalla DSP. Valhalla DSP is a small, independent plugin manufacturer run by self-confessed DSP addict Sean Costello. Valhalla DSP currently offers four high-quality, affordable plugins. Valhalla Ubermod, a multi-step modulation delay. Valhalla Room, a true stereo algorithmic reverb. Valhalla Freak Echo, a frequency shifter and analog echo emulation. And finally, Valhalla Shimmer. Valhalla Shimmer, citing the plugin's homepage, is an algorithmic reverb designed for big sounds, from concert halls to the Taj Mahal to the halls of Valhalla. Once instantiated, Valhalla Shimmer presents a very simple interface. The design is minimal and clean, showcasing a grayscale color scheme with big knobs and legible parameter names. So, let's dive right in. The first parameter is mix, which, of course, adjusts the ratio of the wet or reverberated signal to the original or dry signal. Next is shift. Shift allows the operator to transpose the reverberated signal plus or minus 12 semitones, or one octave. Feedback adjusts the amount of feedback applied to the network. Diffusion controls the shape of the decay. Size controls the length of the delays within the network. The bigger the size, the bigger the room. Low cut and high cut control the cutoff frequencies of their respective filters, allowing for brighter or darker signals. Mod rate and mod depth control the speed and depth of the modulation. So, minus the pitch shifter, Pretty standard reverb controls. Below these knobs, however, are three drop-down submenus, which really help to make Valhalla Shimmer something special. The first, Reverb Mode, offers four settings. Mono, Big Stereo, Medium Stereo, and Small Stereo. This setting selects which bass algorithm is selected for the reverberation network and directly affects the size, density, shift rate, and modulation depth of the reverb. The selections here all work as is to be imagined with mono providing a mono-in, stereo-out signal path, and big, medium, and small stereo, offering stereo-in, stereo-out emulations for various room sizes. The pitch submenu adjusts the type of pitch shifting used in the feedback loop of Valhalla Shimmer, and is the most interesting of the three unique menus. There are five selections to choose from, single, dual, single reverse, dual reverse, and bypass. In the default single mode, the feedback loop is shifted upwards or downwards, This is the classic setting and the heart of Valhalla Shimmer. In dual mode, my personal favorite, the feedback loop is shifted upwards and downwards simultaneously, creating a lush, harmonically rich response. Single reverse and dual reverse work exactly like their siblings, but each shifted bit of signal within the feedback loop is reversed in time. Bypass mode creates a clean path, allowing signal to flow through the network with no pitch shifting at all. Finally, the color mode dictates the overall tone of the algorithm. Two settings are available here, bright and dark. Bright eliminates any additional high frequency loss, beyond, of course, that introduced via the high cut control, and offers a cleaner, more modern sound. Dark contains an inherent amount of high frequency loss around 10K and above, and creates a warmer, more classic reverb. So, that's the meat and potatoes. Not a ton of moving parts on the surface, but the interface is easy to navigate, and the parameters at hand are all you need to get some pretty drastic results. And with that, let's have some fun. 
Valhalla Shimmer makes a great companion to musical samples. In this example, we're going to use a very simple piano chord. These samples are provided by Tonehammer's Emotional Piano Library. Not bad, but very dry. Now we'll add a bit of Valhalla Shimmer. This is instantiated in its default configuration. Very nice. You can definitely hear the pitch shifting as we're going up 12 semitones, or one octave. It really helps add to the texture. Next, we'll put Valhalla Shimmer in its biggest mode. We'll turn the mix all the way up, allowing just the wet signal to pass through, and we'll crank the size and feedback settings. We'll also place it in big stereo and dual modes. That's beautiful. And now you can really start to hear the power of Valhalla's shimmer. Now, what happens if we put it through something a little more harmonically rich? Here's a short string sequence, dry with no reverb. Those strings come from Project Sam's Symphobia library. Now, once again, we'll instantiate Valhalla Shimmer in its default mode. That's pretty nice. I love the way the pitch shifting adds another layer to the sound. Once again, we'll put that same dry string sequence through Valhalla Shimmer with its largest settings. Very nice, starting to sound like a cinematic chill wave band. Now, the real fun with Valhalla Shimmer starts when you start automating some of its parameters. Specifically, the shift and size control can give you some very interesting results. Very nice. I like the movement. I could use that as a subtle whoosh element or send it through some additional processing for something else entirely. What if we automate, well, everything? Here's the same string sequence with all the parameters moving.
Nice. I really like the end bit. Not sure what I'll use it for exactly, but I'll definitely save it in the library. So, obviously Valhalla Shimmer works well with musical sources, but what about sound effects? Good news. Works just as well. Here's a sound I made for a project a few years ago. It's a composite of a bunch of different sounds, effected and layered together. I think it'll make good source material for this brand of reverb. Ah, I remember that one. So, as we've been doing up until this point, let's bring in Valhalla Shimmer with its default settings. Not bad, not bad, but I bet we can make it even better. More, in this case, bigger. I'm liking that a lot. That could be used as a great transition in a horror flick or a trailer. So, for the last example, let's once again play with some automation. Although this time, I'm going to reverse my source material, automate a few select parameters, record the output, and then reverse the result. This should create a big, slow rise. Now that sounded great. I'm going to be sure to save that setting and save its output to my library as soon as possible. As you can hear, Valhalla Shimmer certainly lives up to its billing as a reverb with potential for big, very big, sounds. It works well in musical and sound design specific applications, helping to add a unique layer of texture to any composition. Additionally, there's some really great thought put behind the design of this plugin, and in daily use, it shows. Parameter movement, whether live or via automation, responds smoothly and effortlessly. No pops, clicks, jumps, or other unexpected behavior. That's no easy task for digital circuits, so hats off to Mr. Costello for the spectacular development achievement. I have to say, I love reverbs. They aren't just a static utility for adding depth to music or realism to studio-recorded sounds. They can be a significant design tool and help to open up a wealth of creative opportunities. Valhalla Shimmer does that and more. It sounds great, it's easy to use, and at only $50, well, it's a no-brainer. Whether you're a sound designer, composer, sound artist, or somewhere in between, we highly recommend it as a valuable addition to any toolset. Valhalla Shimmer is available immediately as a direct download from Valhalla DSP's website, www.valhalladsp.com. It also runs in demo mode, so head to the website and give it a try. We're pretty sure you'll love it. That was awesome. It's a pretty badass plugin, and like I said, for $50, I mean... You can get so much out of it. I've used it on just about everything since I picked it up. <laughs> yeah, it's like an additive synth. I mean, when you make those things big, it takes the sources and just, it adds things that weren't there that are very cool sounding. Yeah, it's that it's the pitch shifter, really, that gets you, and it's, uh, it's pretty awesome. The other really cool thing about it was how much you were able to manipulate the parameters without hearing any clicks or weirdness. That's the one thing that reverbs do tend to do is when you got a verb and you start manipulating things, it'll click on you, and that one didn't at all. I don't know how he did that. 
Yeah, it's really smooth. And actually, the pitch mode selection, the dual reverse and single reverse, he's actually designed that specifically to help alleviate some of those issues. Because each grain is reversed, you get a much smoother change over time. He put a lot of thought into it. I think his plugins, in general, all of them are very meticulously designed, and I think it shows the more you use them. I've put just about everything through that thing, and it always sounds good. Another great thing is the actual user interface. Like, it's so simple. One thing I've noticed with a lot of the larger companies' reverbs is there's 70,000 possible switches and dials throughout them. The Valhalla Shimmer, nine knobs going across and then a couple modes underneath. There's no bright colors. It's all in grayscale, and you just grab hold and tweak, and it's all right in front of you instead of, like, flipping through menus and... That is something that I really appreciate. Yeah, it's easy to work with. You can pretty much dive right in. It's one of those kind of magic plugins. You just put it on something and something good comes out. And it works. I actually use it a lot. Even though it's a reverb, I use it a lot as an insert effect. So it works equally as well as a, you know an aux or an insert. And uh, I will say, even though it's doing quite a lot of processing, it's surprisingly processor-friendly. Sean, you got anything on that? <laughs> the thing that kind of grabbed my attention is that there's a modulator built into it. And I think more plugin effects should have modulators built into them because you can do all kinds of fun stuff with them that way. But you know, from my perspective, I'm tending to hold off on plugins until I see that they're AX compatible because eventually 11's coming out. We thought that was going to be AES this year, but I, I got some theories as to why that didn't happen. But yeah, once you know once 11 comes out, Pro Tools is my platform of choice. I kind of stick with that. So I want to make sure that all the plugins that I have are going to be supported the next time I have to move up. Yeah, that was a great segment. Sounds awesome. Yeah, it's it's great. And, and like I said, they're all available in demo mode, so I, I strongly recommend heading to that website and at least trying them out. I think, uh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. So speaking of AES, of the four of us here, you're the one that actually went to AES. Yes, I did. Like I said, there was no Pro Tools 11 there this year. Last year at AES, all the marketing rep guys at Avid were like, yeah, we're going to release 11 at AES next year. But I think what happened was Waves isn't ready with their AAX plugins yet. And since they are such a core third-party support group for the the Pro Tools community, I think Avid didn't want to put 11 out there without having a version of Waves that would actually work in their software. So I'm guessing either at NAM or NAB, we're going to see the next version of Waves, which will be Waves version 10, and it'll have AAX support. Because they've said they're going to at least support AAX native they haven't committed to the DSP version of AAX yet, but I think once we get Waves version 10, that's when we're going to see Pro Tools 11 come out as well. I think they're going to be timed together, and it's probably going to be a, a big thing either at, like I said, NAM or NAB. I heard it was the 64-bit issue that's holding them back, that they still haven't yet come up with a true 64-bit version of Pro Tools. Uh, that's possible. I don't know. Um, I know they've been rewriting the, the core code. Pro Tools 11 is, is a complete rebuild yep. of the Pro Tools software. So th that could have something to do with it as well. Didn't they just do that? No. No, Pro Tools is still a 32-bit application, unfortunately. Yeah, the mix engine is 64-bit, but the kernel, the way that it interfaces with the CPU is what we're referring to in that. Um, gotcha. So it's, it's still a 32-bit piece of software in terms of the, how it interfaces with the rest of the computer, the CPU. Um, the amount of RAM it can access, and so on. Um, 11 is going to be 64-bit, so it'll be able to access more than 4 gigs of RAM. So if you've got 32 gigs of RAM in your computer, it'll be able to use all of it, 
which is going to do all kinds of crazy things for us in the sound design world. <laughs> but um, AES, I didn't spend a lot of time on the floor at AES this year. I did stop in to a couple places. Isotope announced uh, an API, which doesn't really affect us directly so much. It's you know kind of something that they're going to be pushing with other software companies to get their their plugins directly integrated into software, kind of like it's been with Wise. And I think we're going to see that starting to pop up in uh, game audio middleware a lot more. And I was able to talk people at Sennheiser to send me some demo units of some of their digital microphones because these things have been out for years and I don't know anyone who's touched them or heard what they sound like. Yeah, me neither. So I did convince them to send me a couple microphones. It'll probably be a few weeks before I can get my hands on those and give them a, a run, but I'm looking forward to trying those out. My impressions and recording examples and stuff like that, of course, will end up on Designing Sound so everyone else can get a, an idea of what these things can do as well. Because there's a lot of interesting promise behind the technology and what they say it can do. I just haven't actually heard what they can do in real life. Well, it eliminates the whole preamp stage, right? It just goes straight from the... Uh... Not, ent- not entirely. There's still a preamp. The issue is the DA is built into the microphone, and so is the preamp. So you're not going to be able to use... If you've got like a focus right or you've got, you know, an API launch box full of boutique preamps, you're not gonna be able to use those. It does have a preamp control, so you can still adjust the level. It's not just wide open, here's the full dynamic range of the mic. You do have some control over that. The big thing is that they can't be clipped. What happens is um there's kind of two things that we're seeing with that type of technology. One's with Zaxcom, their never clip proprietary technology that they've got built into some of their recorders. That uses multiple amplifiers to kind of control it. What the the Sennheiser and Neumann mics at least do with their ADs and the preamps built into the microphone bodies, they compress. So if your signal starts going way too hot for the preamp, the signal gets compressed before it hits the the DA so it doesn't actually turn into digital distortion. It's it's something I'm not quite I don't quite fully grasp. Um, yeah, that confuses me because how do you compress it without it being already digitized? Because it's kind of a look ahead thing. So it, I think it's a stage between the actual capsule element and the preamp. So it's kind of looking at where you're setting the preamp. And it's compressing the signal before it hits the AD. I'll probably have a better uh, figure out a better understanding of it once I toy around with them. Yeah, so those have been out for years. Uh, Neumann and Sennheiser, which are technically the same company, have lines of digital microphones. And Sheps has some digital microphones. I don't know if anyone else does currently. And when I say digital microphones, obviously I'm not referring to USB microphones. I'm talking about microphones that use the uh, the AES-42 format signal. Because they do have parameters built into the mics that can be controlled as well through that signal remotely. Things like the Sennheiser DO-1 has, uh, I think it's 15 or 18 polar patterns you can select from using the control software. Things like uh, limiters, low-frequency roll-off, stuff like that. So it kind of depends on the mic what's controllable through the AES-42 signal. But when I'm referring to digital mics here, I'm talking about mics that use that AES-42 specification. Did you get to see that that new Audio-Technica 4 capsule square caps uh, rectangular capsule mic i did not like i said i didn't get to spend a lot of time on the floor because i was just bogged down in sessions there were sessions all over the place my schedule literally every day had i think four sessions that i wanted to go to simultaneously throughout the day (laughs) it was kind of ridiculous but as far as we as sound designers are concerned there were kind of three topics that were kind of big at aes in the conference this year one is kind of a recurring topic and that's loudness issues and the loudness sessions had heavy focus in broadcast, but it's also starting to pick up more and more steam in the game audio realm. And we saw sessions in both those tracks kind of popping up and 
actually being well attended. So that was interesting. HTML5 is another big one. There was, I think, three or four sessions on HTML5 audio implementation throughout the course of the, the weekend. And I went and did the technical tour at uh, Electronic Arts, and even they showed off something that they had done in HTML5. They built this whole game engine, and they loaded up this two-player game that's entirely within browser, nothing that has to be installed on the computer. It takes a little while to load the visual assets. It takes no time to load the audio assets. They were very particular about pointing that fact out because it was a room full of audio people. But they were demonstrating this game in HTML5, and that's Electronic Arts. So I think that's going to be something that a lot of us are going to have to start paying attention to going forward, especially if we work in game audio at all. And then, of course, Dolby Atmos has been kind of the big thing this year um, in terms of film. There was a number of sessions that focused on adding height into um, film mixes. I'm sure a lot of that was because of the recent Dolby Atmos this year. And there are other companies like, like Tom Holman has been working on a surround format, a larger multi-channel surround format for a number of years. Meyer Sound has their whole system. So I think um, we're going to see an increasing emphasis on that. And people are just kind of trying to figure out how to use it to begin with. Dolby Atmos uses, rather than our traditional left, center, right panning, you know, we have channels and we pan to those. They do something that's much more similar to what Game Audio has been doing for the last few years, and that's uh, 3D positional information. It's funny talking with people who work exclusively in the film industry. They're, they're kind of trying to wrap their heads around this over the last few months, and they're, they're starting to get it. Talking with, about that with people who have been doing Game Audio in the same group, and it's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, we've been doing that for years. <laughs> and it's, it's funny to watch the exchanges that happen between them because all of a sudden now people who are editing and mixing for films are kind of asking game audio people advice and really technical questions about 3D positional mapping as opposed to game audio trying to snipe stuff from the film people. So it's an interesting turnaround. There. Yeah, for sure. Have you heard anything mixed in Atmos yet? I have. Dolby had a demonstration of the Atmos system which I attended while at AES, and that kind of left me with some mixed feelings. I think a large portion of why I came out with mixed feelings was kind of the room that it was held in. They said flat out towards the end of the demonstration when I asked some kind of pointed questions that I think they weren't too happy about, that the room really isn't designed for Atmos. That They have uh, architectural elements in there that don't really lend themselves to Atmos. The big thing being cavity-mounted side speakers on the left and right side that causes problems and also isn't what you would experience in a typical movie theater where, at least from what we're used to, it's an array of speakers that are mounted in a plane, a flat wall that has acoustical treatments as well, but not architectural acoustic treatments, so so much to speak of. So that was interesting. And the AMC Metreon in San Francisco, which is right around the corner from the Moscone Convention Center, was showing Chasing Mavericks, and they had two showings during the day that were showing in Atmos. So I took advantage of that so that I could hear it in a uh, more of a finished product concept rather than a marketing and sales tool, which is what a lot of the, the demonstrations in the, the Dolby presentation were. And I'm writing up a, a lengthy article for Designing Sound. Yeah. So th that'll be on Atmos. That's already at 2,000 words and going. So it's, <laughs> there'll be plenty of people for people to read to kind of get my take on Atmos as I've heard it thus far. Speaking of designing sound, do you want to give us a quick rundown? You guys posted recently that designing sound was going to do a bit of a different format. Do you want to talk on that for a moment? 
Uh, sure. Well, uh, as a lot of you and a lot of your listeners probably know, Designing Sound is completely run by volunteers and everyone who contributes on the site in the past, be that as featured sound designers or as contributing editors or just one-off articles, um, has been on a strictly volunteer basis. Uh, we don't sell any advertising. We have no budget for the site whatsoever. And it's really just kind of a, a community site and we want to keep it that way. But at the same time, we recognize that over the last few months where we have haven't had a featured sound designer, that it really wasn't doing what we wanted it to do. The problem with the featured sound designer is it's kind of hard to call up other working professionals and be like, hey, you mind writing four or five articles in a month for us to put up on the site without offering them any kind of compensation for that? Because it's a significant investment of time. I was always amazed at Miguel's ability to do that in the first place. Absolutely. And the people who did it are absolute saints. Everyone from Rodney Gates to Rick Veers, David Sonnenschein, and Krober. I mean, it, the list goes on and we really appreciate everything that they did. And we're still going to try to pull in people to contribute in a similar manner, but on a much less intensive basis, you know, contacting people to write up an article on a single topic. So that's kind of what we've moved to is we're are going to be featuring themes each month. This month of November, we're talking about ambiences, and in December, we're going to be talking about reverbs, and we've announced both those already. And everyone who's a, a contributing editor is also a working professional, so we're all going to work on contributing at least one piece of original material that's educational or workflow or just editorial to the site. And that's not necessarily something that we write ourselves. It could be something that we help someone write if we call up uh, one of our friends who are working on a regular basis, kind of like how the featured sound designers used to work. Maybe we can get them in to write an article on a subject, or maybe it's something like uh, I put together more of the film sound discussion groups, which I am working on. It's just figuring out what the next topic should be is, or where we're going to fit that next one in is always interesting. So we're going to keep this going. And we're also, we wanted to give people a chance to kind of pitch articles at the site because there are a ton of people out there who are working around the world who are doing amazing work who, frankly, we just don't know or haven't heard of. So if someone has something interesting to contribute to the community, we want to give those people a chance to do so. So we're already getting some people throwing their hats into the ring, so to speak, um, this month, and hopefully that'll continue in the next few months. So hopefully that will really rejuvenate the site and give us a nice block of original content to kind of share with people so that we can keep the discussions going and we can all continue learning and expanding our craft. That's great. Miguel stepped away from the site and Miguel was the founder of Designing Sound. He stepped away from the site earlier this year because he's a young guy trying to get his career going and I think just the amount of work that he had to he was putting into the site was detracting from the work that he could and should have been putting into developing his own career in the sound industry. He started to make that shift when he brought a lot of other people on, people like uh, Avram Nair, myself. We had Jamie Hart for a while and a few other people who have had to step back since. And we've had a few people come in and kind of step up and take their places. Uh, Colin Hart is joining the site. Jack Menhorn has taken over as the primary site administrator. And uh, Peter Albertson, who's kind of been an on and off contributor, he's still going to try to contribute. And Michael Taylor, who took over for uh, Damien Kaspauer. When Miguel stepped away, things kind of fell apart. We're working on putting them back together. Uh, just trying to get ourselves a little better organized because Miguel kind of was the heart of the site. And it's been interesting figuring out how to run that site without him in it. 
Yeah, it's a whole level of respect when one person was running it and a bunch of and a group of people comes in and it's like it's it's a massive effort for everyone to uh, to pick up the pieces of what one person was holding up. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing that you kind of have going on right now, you were talking about the loudness conferences at AES, and you wrote an article that just got published as well. Uh, yes, I did. Uh, actually, I wrote it back in, was it April or May of this year? Uh, it was just they had a, a long backlog of audio-related articles for Game Developer Magazine that they wanted to get out. The article that's out now in the November issue is something very similar to what I wrote on my blog, Dynamic Interference, uh, back in March, I think it was. The article has me taking some slightly different positions. It's kind of a, a growth of the idea since talking with other people between the original blog posts and that. And honestly, uh, I spoke to some people at AES this year, and some of my thinking about it has shifted a little further. I still think that uh, the concept of a long-term loudness measurement or long-term Meaning, like LEQ style. Yeah, well, uh, how it works in broadcast is we measure over the length of the program. I don't think that works so well in games, unless, and this is where my thinking has changed. Unless you have a really long window, you're talking like like three hours. You're not going to have a truly representative measurement of what the game is going to produce as a single loudness measurement. So, unless you're going to measure in a, a very long period of time, my argument is maybe people should think about using a short-term window. You know, like with the LM100. Uh, allows you to select a measurement window of 3 to 10 seconds and using a range of measurements and just keeping it within that range so it doesn't drop below a specific threshold and it doesn't go above a threshold and then you mix to allow for a dynamic range. But I don't want to say too much about the article because I don't want to get the Game Developer Magazine editors pissed off at me for talking <laughs> too much about what's in the article. So go to Game Developer and buy the issue. Isn't the solution to game audio loudness the same as it is in film? Just mix in a calibrated room? Yeah, and talking with people at AES this year, it's it's funny uh, just how little standardization there is even between studios that are working on the same games as far as what their listening levels are. Some are working in acoustically treated rooms and others aren't. So it's that is the key issue, I think. The issue of loudness metering in games is they're just trying to figure out how to use it, if they should use it, and they do think they should use it, how they should implement that and what's going to be best for games. I think the, the broadcast models don't necessarily work for games. They just need to kind of figure out what, what is going to work best for them and what's going to be the most appropriate. I think some of the more successful game mixes have been done in that style, where they have basically taken it to a mix stage and locked the, locked the monitor level off and mixed it like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, games these days are films. Uh, they're interactive films. And so I don't see why the approach to producing one should be any different. Like you said, Sean, I don't think the broadcast workflow really makes sense for game audio, nor does it make sense for film audio. I'd like to see them hopefully stay away from any kind of loudness metering and just simply enact standards for room calibration. Dolby has some really great documentation that tells you exactly what to do if you're mixing for film, and it'd be nice if one of the game organizations could come out with something similar. Yeah, one of the things that they run into is, uh, in terms of producing game audio is costs and everywhere we go audio are the bastard stepchildren of whatever industry we happen to be in the the loudness measurement gives them another tool to kind of help them predict how it's going to behave in the home theater or the living room setting and that's important for them in terms of building a quality mix or they've they've identified that as being an important potential ability for them in developing a mix that is predictable across multiple listening environments. No two people are going to be listening in the exact same environment in their homes. So, 
Yeah, the one X factor that games have that films really don't have is the percentage of the people that play games on headphones, uh, especially when you're talking about first-person shooters and that type of thing where they're relying on 3D spatial context to hear footsteps behind them so they can turn and blast people. So people really listen to games on cans to a much higher degree than people listen to films on headphones. I think that's definitely a complicating factor. Absolutely. And, you know, it's something uh, that people have to keep in mind regarding the whole loudness issue. And this is something that I was speaking with uh, Tom Hayes from Technicolor about after the conferences one day. Broadcast has the FCC, which the whole purpose of the FCC is kind of to regulate spectrum in the civilian and the military band, specifically to keep the civilian band out of the military band. And some of the old broadcast standards that we had were the whole minus 10 dB limit. A lot of that stuff tied into that. And there was financial repercussions if you violated those standards. Game audio doesn't have that. You know, they don't have, for the most part, they don't have the equivalent of people changing channels and encountering varying loudness levels between multiple channels or even within a channel between programs and commercial advertisements, um, which is kind of what the Com Act is going to be doing starting December of this year. So it's interesting because any new layer in terms of quality control in games adds to the budget of the developers. Whereas in broadcast, they have to account for that in the budget. Otherwise, the fines are going to be a, a higher amount than they're going to pay just to implement the quality control. So it's, it's an interesting uh, dichotomy to go in there between the, the two philosophies. You know, I suppose that's another reason why I, I think standards make more sense because there's no budget concern that you have to worry about, you know? You don't have to buy any additional gear. You don't have to change your room setup. You just have to know what you're supposed to be mixing towards. That's it. You know, film doesn't have anybody regulating it, although they did have Dolby, but digital cinema is changing that. And I think it's actually that's probably a topic for another show. I think uh, the film audio world was going to change significantly in the next five years. It'll be a bit of a wild, wild west. And I think you're going to hear a lot of films that sound very bad for a while. <laughs> <laughs> because you'll no, you no longer have to get Dolby in to print master your stuff. You can send it directly to a theater. You know, I think if you just had a widely known, widely adopted standard, that would just be it. And you wouldn't have to really worry about an additional level of quality control because all the rooms that you were working in would be set the same and configured the same. And no matter how hard you try, you can never really be sure that the playback medium or the playback space is going to be you know, what you needed it to be to get the most out of your mix. You know, there's a saying in film that mix it for your space, and once it gets out of there, that's it, you know? You just do the best you can. You have no control over where your mix goes, unfortunately, whether they listen in headphones or on an iPod earbuds or in a beautiful cinema. The other issue that they're working with, though, is that to some degree they have no control over the space in which they mix. Well, convincing people to invest in those spaces has been problematic for for some developers. See, um, that I have a problem with. If you're going to make a game, then pony up the money to build the space to make a good game. Yep. And then, you know, if you're not, then don't complain about the fact that your audio sounds like shit. <laughs> I mean, there is an investment, there's a capital investment to producing good work. And if you're not willing to do it, then you should be doing something else. Yep, completely agree. It's tough, to, it's tough to convince people of that, but... It is. Well, I think that's the double-edged sword of technology. People think you can just, well, computers are cheap, so we can produce audio in our bedrooms and it'll be fine. That's unfortunately not the way it works. Yeah, you really have to have a good listening environment. 
And yes, I've been inside of the rooms where people are designing sounds for games, and they're often suboptimal. To say the least, yeah, so have I. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a heroic effort that, that some of these guys are doing, putting good sound out in those environments with those tools, with playback environments that are, you know, offices, their cubicles or whatever, with, some, with a 5.1 you know, little speaker set up around it. I think that's why the, the loudness metering is attractive to them, is because, you know, regardless of spectral content, you're going to get a measurement that's comparable to other spectral con- You know, it's, it's a predictable measurement regardless of spectral content. So at least they know how loud it actually is compared to other sounds that they're implementing. Yeah. I think there's also an element where once standards start to be put in and there's specs, it gives the audio department a way to go to the budget people and say, listen, we got to do it this way and pull the budget out of people once they know that there's a reason for it. Where if you just say, I want it to sound better, maybe the people at the head of the game just say, that sounds good enough. But if you can say it needs to be within these parameters, it's easier to get them to pony up the money, I think. Right, but unless it's uh, mandated by the the distribution medium, well, yeah. y- y- you don't have it. So That'd be the key. It had to be the distributors that mandate it. It'd have to be Microsoft, Sony, Nintendo. They'd have to have a set mandate. And, you know, the Sony guys have been working on it a little bit. Gary Taylor over in uh, the UK developing loudness spec for in-house productions, you know, first-party software productions. They're working on it. You know, everyone's kind of trying out different things to figure out how they can how they can use it. But in the end, it seems like the best thing that they could possibly mandate would be to be in a room that has dimensions that are somewhere within these you know few parameters and have your calibrated speaker playback and then do art. Yeah. You know, just like every other part of the game. Yeah, that's what that's what I'm into. The other thing that I I'm always a little leery of the whole loudness monitoring thing is that I, I feel like it teaches people to mix with their eyes. And that's always, I don't know, a little little hairy there, you know? Yep. Well, what's nice about the loudness metering is you can look away from it. It's over time, so it's not something that's going to change every five seconds. You can be mixing your ears and look up and be like, oh, okay, I'm drifting a little high. You know, you've gone one LU or one LKFS up. It's like, okay, so I'll just know I have to pull back a little bit and go back to mixing. From my experience, it allows a little more freedom than the old specs, the old broadcast specs. Sure. I guess my point is, certainly in broadcast, I think it's made a big difference. Um, you know, I don't see as much of the, the two-by-four mixes as I used to. But um, in game audio, when you're working in these suboptimal rooms, and you can't really hear one thing from another anyway, the, the loudness monitoring, you know, you may think it sounds terrible, but hey, that loudness monitor is telling you you're right where you need to be. So, well, that's it. And I think rather than using your ears and making an adjustment, you may just read the meter yeah. and say, yeah, that's what it's supposed to be, so that's what I'm going to ship. Yeah, and we've kind of gone off on a tangent. I'm not necessarily the best person to talk about this with because I do broadcast and film. I don't really do game audio. <laughs> so <laughs> get, get a game audio guy on and talk, about, talk with him about it and see what they have to say because you know, they have different perspectives than, than we do. Yeah, no doubt. I think Renee's probably right on is that the best games are taken to dub stages and mixed in a calibrated room environment, those are the ones that always, at least to me, sound the best. Yeah, but also the best sounding movies are taken to a dub stage too. Not every movie has the budget for it though. No doubt. But, right. uh, you can definitely find mid-sized rooms that can put out some great quality Absolutely. stuff. So it's all about just finding a way. It's a new industry game audio. Like it, Obviously it's been around for, I guess, what, like almost 30 years now? 30, 40 years, yeah, basically. Yeah, but 
in in its own way compared to the way most audio rooms are set up to deal with broadcast and film, which have been around much longer. So game audio is not only finding its own way, it's finding its own way through a Rubicon built for other things. And it's going to get there. It's just, Especially now, the game industry is bigger in many ways than the film industry. So people are going to start leaning towards it more. So it will find its way. It's just a matter of time, I think. Yeah. I think uh, to continue on the tangent, philosophically speaking, I'd like I'd, I wish in audio we could stop segregating, you know, things into oh that's game audio and you have to do it this way, or oh that's film audio and you have to do it this way, or that's broadcast audio you have to do it this way. It's just audio. I mean, we should all be working the same way, and then that way we could all have conversations amongst each other, and you wouldn't have to sit here and say, well, let's get a game audio guy on here so we can figure out what they're thinking. It's like if we all had the same standards, worked the same way, had the same workflow. You know, I think the the community at large would be a lot better off for it. I think one of the reasons why audio has become yeah, imagine if pop music was mixed in like a calibrated environment. Yeah, wouldn't it be good? I've had those conversations with some of my, you know, recording studio engineer friends, and they, when you bring up the conversation of calibration, their heads explode. Like, what are you talking about? I turn it up if I need more. I turn it down if I need less. The end. <laughs> I was like, yeah, but that's not right. And then you start getting into why we do it, and they're like, oh yeah, that's. That's pretty smart, you know? So I know that all of my records would sound the same way, and it's like, yep, that's, that's the reason for it. I wish that we in, in audio could stop with the compartmentalizing what each other does and, you know, this whole notion of, well, we can't talk about game audio because we're not game audio people, or we can't talk about film because we're not film audio people. If we could just wipe down, break down those walls and just all together come up with standards that work, because at the end of the day, it is just audio, and... Whether it's a film or a game or music, you're still consuming it probably in the same ways, in the same mediums. Through an iPod that sounds like shit. Basically, yes. yeah. I mean, basically. We're all consuming it off of our yeah. iPhone. Basically, I, as I, you know, <laughs> record through my iPad right now. <laughs> right on. Well, with that. Yeah, we could go forever on that, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Just rounds, but I'll, I'll back off and stop. <laughs> so to wrap it up here, thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Thanks to Adele Young for letting us bend and twist her voice on our bumpers. Thanks to Sean for jumping on the podcast with us today. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Tim for editing the show. Uh, thanks go out to uh, David Burns, who contributed sounds for the bumpers and the transitions and uh, did the interview with Tim. David Burns can be found at bartmart.com. For the uh, Valhalla segment, thanks to Project Sam Symphobia Library and to the Tone Hammer Emotional Piano for the samples that were used in the reverb segment. You can follow the show at the Tonebenders on Twitter. You can go to tonebenders.net and leave us a comment or check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash tonebenderspodcast. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks. Bye, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Find us online at tonebenders.net where you can see our archives and leave a comment or a tip. If you listen on iTunes, please write us a review while you're there. Follow us on Twitter at the Tonebenders or email us at dc, timothy, or renee at tonebenders.net. 